0: Hi, I'm Joseph McClendon III, and welcome to the Cure for the Common Life podcast. Listen, you know as well as I do that motivation, empowerment, and inspirational stories, they're all well and good, but that's not what keeps us going. That's not what's going to change your life, and that's not what's going to move the needle in your health, your wealth, your happiness, your abundance, or your ability to be able to help other people and make a difference. What keeps us going, what produces results in our lives is activity, not action, activity. And when you can get yourself past the things that stop you and hold you back, that's when you'll thrive and that's when you'll crush it. And I humbly offer you these tools and strategies to kick your own ass and make the changes so that you can thrive. But most of all, I'm gonna give you something every single time that you can do to create a change in yourself. Life is exactly what you dare to make it, and fortune favors the bold, baby. So if you're ready, let's bold. All right. So hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Cure for the Common Life. I'm extremely excited to uh, share with you somebody that I actually just recently met, but I'd heard about for several years. And Rebecca Gregory is somebody that epitomizes the term from tragedy to triumph. And uh, something happened to her. It was April 15th, 2013, that would have ended it for most people, but it didn't for her. She is an amazing woman. She's an amazing mother, author, businesswoman, and has inspired and continues to inspire so many people's lives. And so it's my pleasure to introduce you to my new dear friend, Rebecca Gregory. Rebecca, how are you today?
1: Well, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. I feel honored to be on your show.
0: (laughs) Well, you ain't seen nothing yet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I alluded to it, and I wanted to give you the opportunity to kind of share with everybody you know, who you are and what happened to you and what brought you to this place. And kind of because part of this show, Rebecca, is about showing people how to live an uncommon life because the common life is, you know, it's nothing wrong with it, but most people aspire to live something different and that causes, that calls for being different. And you, of course, have gone through something, as I said before, that most people That would knock them down and keep them down, but it didn't you. Share with us a little bit about what happened and where you came from, and then maybe a little bit about what made you be able to rise to the place that you are right now. Sure.
1: So on April 15, 2013, I was at the Boston Marathon, and I was cheering on a that had qualified to run the race. I oftentimes want to preface it with that because everyone always thinks that I was the runner (laughs) and I was not the runner. I was eating chocolate covered pretzels on the sidelines, wondering why anyone would ever run 26.2 miles for the fun of it. (laughs) That was just me at that time. I have great admiration and respect for people who do train. But that weekend, my old son and I had flown up to Boston to visit and hang out with some friends and cheer on our friend that was running. So it was my 26th birthday weekend, my first time ever even in the city of Boston. And I remember we caught a Red Sox game, we had toured the city, and we were all packed up and ready to go home as soon as that marathon had concluded on Monday. And I'm from Kentucky, and I was living in Texas at the time. So I had no idea how big Patriot's Day truly was for the city of Boston and that it was an actual holiday and that the marathon was this enormous event. I thought it was just something cool that a friend had qualified for. So looking back on it, it's just interesting how much I know now versus then, But that day on Monday, we had packed all of our stuff up. We were ready to go home as soon as the marathon had concluded. And we started out at the 17 mile marker. And we were cheering our runners on and holding up our signs. And my five-year-old son, Noah, was with us. And this one particular moment, I'll never forget it, because he was standing on the fence and he's watching all the runners pass. And one of them proceeds to lose his breakfast right in front of where Noah was standing. (laughs) And he gave me this look like, Mom, what are they doing? That was just our mentality right then and there. And... One of our people in our group of about nine said, Hey, let's get closer to the finish line and let's see our runner cross. And so we're making our way through the crowd. And what people don't tell you is that when you go to watch someone run a marathon, you end up running the same marathon with them trying to keep up. Wow! And not only am I trying to make my way through the crowd, I'm trying to get my son through the crowd too. And he just, had gotten really bored Joseph and, and we were kind of both over it. And by the time we got to the spot, he was tugging on my clothes and saying, Oh mom, I'm so bored. When are we going to leave? And racking brain, five year old was bored. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And what was I thinking in terms of why would I bring him to a marathon of half a million right. people? I mean, it just was not very logical, but I did. And so at that time, the only thing that I could do was I said, buddy, why don't you stand on my feet and play in the rocks like your a And of course, there were no rocks. We were on asphalt, but to a five-year-old, that was cool. And so he took his place on my feet with his back up against the shin. That's exactly where he was when a bomb in a backpack went off three feet behind us. And, you know, it it's hard to explain the rest of our journey without just pausing there for a minute and saying, I understand that my story is heavy. And before Boston, I got held up in a Walmart parking lot and robbed at gunpoint. And I thought that was going to be the biggest highlight of my life. And you and I have both kind of discussed, I had a very traumatic childhood and all of this. So my life has essentially been a series of, am I going to swim as fast as I can, or am I going to sink down to the bottom? And in those moments, I look back right after the bomb went off and I had no clue what was going on other than it was some type of evil because everything around me was like a war scene. I was... Thrown back to the ground. I could only lift my head up. I was panning around to see people's body parts, not even attached to them anymore nails, ball bearings, BBs, everything that these brothers packed into these pressure cooker bombs. And I looked down to see my own left leg on fire and I was in a pool of my own blood. My bones were laying next to me on the sidewalk. But what I was thinking is that my son was at my feet. He was sitting down on the ground and I could not even see my feet anymore. But a really amazing thing happened because I was able to spot Noah in the arms of a police officer. And so I knew that Noah was not injured to the extent that I was. And I say that because the majority of people will never get blown by a bomb in a marathon, but every single person has life blow up in their face where they're in those moments thinking, what am I going to do? And how did I even get here? And so I know what that feels like. But I saw my son in a time that I was so scared. And I thought that I was going to lose my life. I was laying on that pavement fighting for every single breath that I still had in me. But I was able to see my son and know that no matter what, he was going to be okay. So I look back and I think what a blessing that is. And if both of us were three feet away from a bomb that should have killed us every day after is beautiful.
0: Was he hurt at all?
1: He had a cut to his bone on his right leg that they were able to stitch up. And he had one piece of shrapnel raised the back of his head. But I have had 70 operations and counting, had thousands of pieces of shrapnel in my body, and I lost my left leg below the knee. And my little boy was as close as I was to that bomb, and he's totally fine.
0: that is divine intervention to say the least
1: yes wow. <laughs> would say so
0: do you know how long you were unconscious or were you ever unconscious?
1: I was never knocked unconscious, and that probably is the hardest part of this journey because it's everything we all an experience day emotionally, and that's what I've been trying to really be transparent and vulnerable out because oftentimes it's not the physical scars that haunt us the worst. It's the emotional. It's everything that we carry on our hearts. Mm -hmm. And seeing that and experiencing that amount of trauma was something that was devastating for both of us.
0: Amazing. And so you said there's 70 operations and counting. You're still working with it?
1: Yes, I still have tons of shrapnel in my body that continues to cause issues. And just because I have my amputation doesn't mean that my leg always works right. And so when you have foreign materials in your body, it just does weird things. So it's kind of the aftermath of getting blown up by a bomb.
0: <laughs> right. You know, you say that so so <laughs> nonchalant, yeah, getting blown up in a bomb. Even when you said it, yeah, a bomb went off behind me. <laughs> you know, and I think most of us remember when that happened. And It is so easy for us to go, oh, that happened to them, those people. And I know I asked you before, there are others who uh, had injuries and survived and things. And to my knowledge, and I know others are doing things as well, to my knowledge, you're the only one that I know of that has really made, I'm not going to say a career of it, but it is your passion to spread a message to other people that that is not the end. And as you said before, you have other tragedies in your life as well. And you and I were talking before and Rebecca had said that, you know, some of those may have even prepared you to be the way that you were after this. Share with us a little bit about your journey coming out of that and maybe not all the way up to where you are right now, but up to the point where you realize that your calling really is to share and help other people move beyond their tragedies.
1: It took me a long time to really embrace this as a quote unquote career because what I wanted to do is help other people through whatever they were struggling with. But I didn't know how I was going to do it at that time. All I knew is that I had this passion that I wanted to share as much of my story with others to potentially inspire them and it was. It's really amazing what happens when we go through so many traumatic experiences in our lifetime. It makes us appreciate just the little things. Mm-hmm. So for 26 years, I got out of bed and usually I hit the snooze button before I did about 16 different times and I was running late for everything and I was always in a rush and It made me slow down to the point where when a bomb goes off in your life and blows up in everything that you ever have known, and you're picking up those pieces, you really prioritize things a lot differently. And my perspective changed. And so the small little trivial things that we all worry so much about became just that they were trivial. And I had no idea that this platform that I was being given would grow to be what it is. But I do believe that every part of hardship or obstacle that I had prior to this has led me up to deal with this a little bit better. We had talked about my biological father being an evangelist. And so he traveled around the world preaching and would come home and beat my mother and I. And so from a very young age, I had a very skewed version of what a father's love was. And one of the last things that he told me as a preteen, that I would never be good enough for anyone or anything. And that really stuck with me. But him doing that and him creating that amount of trauma in my life early led me to create a nonprofit that provides mental health treatment for children and families that are suffering from trauma. I had to go through some tough stuff to get to this point, but I look back and I'm thankful for every little part of it.
0: What makes the difference though? Because some people can get a, you know, they don't get to get their haircut because it's COVID now and that's as traumatic to them and it causes them to go the other way and and have bad behaviors. And lots of people have had bad things happen to them, and they didn't go the route that you did. What do you think is the defining, I'm not going to say defining moment, but the defining reason why that made it so that you were able to say that, yeah, I've had all this tragedy, enough is enough. Now I'm going to do this. What would you say
1: is the difference? One of the biggest things for me is just getting up every morning and counting my blessings and not my problems. I think that any one of us could say the horrible things that are going on in our lives and we can focus on that. But when you get up and you are just thankful for having air in your lungs and the ability to still have a purpose in this world, it's such an amazing And then you think about the other things that you've been given, no matter how small or how big that you think that they are. That right there keeps me going. I didn't have the opportunity to give up because I had a son that needed me. He deserved a mom that was going to get up and fight every single day. And I have a family that loves and supports me and so many others in my life that would just be devastated if I threw in the towel or threw my love across the room and didn't look at her anymore.
0: (laughs) Now, was that something that was taught to you? Did somebody along the line counsel you to do that, get up and count your blessings? Or was that something that evolved? How did that come about?
1: My mom was the first one that really taught me that at a very young age, because mm. even though she had been going through so many obstacles and hardships in her own marriage, in her own life, she never let that seep into us as children. I have three younger sisters And it was just really amazing to me how she could be so sad and yet never show it to us. She was so strong and so courageous. And I know that came from her faith in A Bigger Plan, which she instilled in me, too. And I I just look at things like that. I feel like I've always been a pretty positive person, but this has really made it just 10 times greater. I do. I look at life as an opportunity. I don't see the obstacles. And if there are obstacles, then I look at how I'm going to overcome them. It's almost like the harder the challenge, the more I want it.
0: And so that is now your character trait. And everybody <laughs> listening, you know, take a lesson because I, you know, I believe in the cure for the common life. Oftentimes, are the simple things, the simple Absolutely. things that we do. And what you're sharing with us here is that you have a practice, maybe a ritual, of getting up in the morning and uh, counting your blessings and looking at those things. Because not everybody has a mom like yours, or in my case, a dad like mine that demonstrated those things. And quite the contrary. And in your case, you had just the opposite as well. You had somebody telling you that your worth was nothing and things like that. And uh, let's just say the good one over the evil in this case. (laughs) And, um, you know, as I look at this, what advice would you have for somebody? And I know you, as a matter of fact, share with us a little bit about your book, but what advice would you have for somebody that is facing whatever challenges? And and unless you've been living under a rock, everybody that's listening, whenever you're listening to this, we're in the midst of COVID. I call it this pause in our momentum, as well as the racial unrest and the things that are going on in our country right now. So a lot of people are searching for what to do, how to feel, what advice would you have to somebody outside of it? Obviously that's great advice in get up every morning and count your blessings, but share with us a little bit about your book and maybe what advice that you would have for somebody in learning and not just coping with this, but going forward as well.
1: I think the biggest thing that I've learned through all of this is that unless you have been on the ground picking up the pieces of your life and wondering how you're going to survive the next day, then you really don't know who you are as a person. You almost have to be broken and put back together so many times to grow and to learn and to become who you're meant to be. And if I didn't go through all of the things that I still go through on a regular basis, Mm -hmm. COVID-19, you mentioned I was supposed to have surgery right before COVID hit. And so we've had to put that off a little bit. When I look at COVID and everything that's going on in the world, though, I think the first thing we have to do is just take a deep breath and allow ourselves to be sad and to grieve a little bit. Because in doing that, we really get to understand things a lot better. And you and I have had a great conversation over everything going on right now, too. And I just think that sometimes you have to stop and say, I'm not okay. And how do I get to the point of acceptance of this? Because it's not always been easy. I've made a lot of decisions that I probably would never would have made, but I've learned from every single one of them. And part of that for me is just not giving myself the option to do anything else push forward. But that doesn't mean that I don't have bad days. There's plenty of days that I don't want to put my leg on, and maybe I, I need to rest or need to take it a little easy or just need to be sad. It's okay to experience all of those emotions.
0: That's spectacular. And along with that sadness, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a scientist, Rebecca. And, yes. And so I always look for okay, well, why does that work? That stepping back and taking a deep breath. And from a purely physiological and mm-hmm. an, an emotional and physical standpoint, what happens to us when we do that, when we step back in the midst of crisis? Yes. in the midst of, and I, I, you know, yours is certainly more than a metaphor, you know, sitting there picking up the pieces of your life. You're literally picking up the pieces of your body and things around like that. But when I look at what happens when we do pause for a moment, I use the word meditate because a lot of times people, when they hear the word meditate, they think of, you know, unicorns and and rainbows and, and, <laughs> and things like that. But I use it like this. Whenever you're silent, you're forced to listen to your own thoughts and whatever voice those thoughts are saying. And then you get the opportunity to determine whether to listen to that voice or not. If you don't take that silent in that moment, and like what you said, you know, say, I'm not okay if you're not okay. And then what do I get to do about it? Because then you have options. As long as you're yak, 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 and you're in the midst of it and you're worried and things like that, and you're not stopping and resting for that moment slash meditating, then your brain is not going to be able to come up with those options. And so I imagine that you've probably had plenty of time in hospital beds and hospital rooms to listen to that voice and to be silent. Is that
1: true? This is the first time in my life, the last seven years, I have been more still and silent than I ever was before this, because now it is so important. And I, I love how you put that. That's what I believe every single day is when we stop and allow ourselves to be still and really look at the world around us, we see things in a completely different light sometimes in a different perspective. But so many of us are scared to do that because being comfortable is normal. But being uncomfortable is just that it's uncomfortable and it's hard to sit with some of those feelings. But that's when we grow and we heal from so much.
0: And that uncomfortableness, I'm so glad you said that because the common life is when it's uncomfortable, get out of it, drink alcohol, smoke weed, you know, play a video game, do whatever, but don't deal with that in that moment. But it's from that uncomfortableness, it's from that, let's just call it stress that we grow. Everything in life is that way. You know, I was watching something with my son, it's been a little while ago, we were watching how lobsters on the bottom of the ocean, how they grow. You know, they're, you know, they're pretty active little creatures that are moving around and all of a sudden they become inactive. And the reason they become inactive is because the inside of, they got a hard shell on the outside of them and the inside of them is growing and there's all this pressure and pressure. And then all of a sudden that hard shell splits open. And then what comes out of them is soft and vulnerable for a moment, but now it gets to grow even bigger. Just the whole process of elimination in our bodies, you know, you, you feel pressure and you eliminate, you know, mm-hmm. everything is pressure release, pressure release. But it's, I feel like we're the only animals that contain that pressure and try and alleviate that pressure. But as soon as we do, then we rob ourselves of the opportunity of growing. Now I know you, you've actually written a couple books, yes?
1: Just one. I what hope to one? write another.
0: And tell us a little bit about your book. And I, I know- look- writing another book, it's like, uh, come on. <laughs> there's another there's another labor of, of love sitting around picking the pieces of your life, right?
1: <laughs> yes. And I'm very impressed that you've written so many too. My first book is called Taking My Life Back, because that's essentially what I'm still doing every single day. And it talks about the hard stuff that I've had to endure. But then it also talks about the triumphs. In 2015 is when I got my Leg, And I named her Felicia jokingly because (laughs) she's like a new addition to my family. And I had seen the movie Friday and the quote, I wish (laughs) I had Felicia's life. She's always going somewhere. And I had the doctors didn't take my leg right away. So it was 18 months after the bombing before Mm -hmm. they actually amputated. So I had 18 months of that stillness and quiet that we're talking about where I was on 37 medications just to make it throughout the day. And I was either in a bed or in a wheelchair the entire time. And I really had to decide to cut out what was holding me back. And so I joked that it was a bad boyfriend that I needed to get out of my life because Lord knows I've had enough of those. (laughs) And I had a going away party for my left leg at my friend's restaurant. And I did one last pedicure, Boston Strong Blue and Yellow. And that Monday morning, I, I sent my bad boyfriend leg right out the door and I had never felt better. I was. I just said, I'm going to do, yeah, I said, I'm going to do everything on a fake leg that I didn't do on two real ones. Because for 26 years, I had just expected, like I said, to get out of bed and put two feet on the ground. When I couldn't do that anymore, it was a wake up call for me. And I promised myself that I was going to live life like I had never done. And the same year, it's so interesting, because When I got my prosthetic, I got it in January of 2015. And in the hospital in November, when I was amputated, the U.S. attorney and one of the FBI agents came into my rehab room and said, I know that you just got your leg cut off, but we're going to need you to testify in the trial of the bomber come this spring. And so I'm thinking, oh my gosh, can I just get like a little bit of a break here? Like <laughs> let me let me deal with everything I've got going on right now. But the part that I didn't see coming is that it was finally me being able to close a chapter that I had wanted to close for so long and get to a new chapter. And what I mean by that is I had to go to Boston And give my testimony in front of the judge and the jury and the biggest enemy of my life And I sat about five feet away from him and he would never look me in the eye and it was so hard I was crying and it was so hard to even get through because I see Victims families of people that didn't get to make it that day And I see all of the survivors that are coming in and rehashing the worst moments of their lives but the best part though is that I got to go back and give a victim impact statement because the US attorney called me back and I said, Well, first of all, I've got to Google what a victim impact statement even is because I've know. never
0: Be sure yeah.
1: been. Yeah, I've never been part of a federal trial before. So what it is is it's a statement that the judge and the jury hear right before the judge makes his final verdict. And essentially you say all of the different things that have happened to you, how it's impacted your life, you know, what, what this person has done. And I told the U.S. attorney, I said, look, I have seen this guy lean back in his chair in the courtroom and fiddle with his pencil and crack jokes with his attorney and not even acknowledge the jury on one of the first days of the trial. There is no way I am going to give him any more satisfaction than what he already has. And I'll give a victim impact statement. But I'm not going to give one to him that is going to make him smile and proud of things that he's done. So I, I got to go back to Boston and I stood right in front of him and I looked him in the eyes. And this is the first time that he looked at me and I said, I was asked to give a victim impact statement today. But in order to do that, I would have to be someone's victim and I'm not yours and I'm not your brother's. Wow! wow. And I what I went on to say was that for an act of hate that stretched a couple hundred feet, we've seen an act of love stretch hundreds of thousands of miles. And my promise to him that day was that I was going to use the rest of my life, however much time I had left to do my small part in making the world a better place. That is a promise that I have clung on to every single day when I don't want to get out of bed or when PTSD enters in because it often does, or I'm just exhausted. I think about that. And I think about the fact that if I give up, then those two brothers have won and I don't want them to take my life away from me. They saved my life. They gave me more reason to live than I ever had before because I didn't realize. How much I was taking things
0: for granted. Wow, Rebecca, your soul shows through, and Thank you. part of the reason why I wanted to have you on this show is you're obviously not living a common life, and you're such an example for other people. Not once in your conversation, whether it's before when we talked or now, have I ever heard any animosity towards those people. You didn't say I hate these people. I didn't, you know, and you know, I think most people would be hard pressed to not feel that. And especially if I knew that my son was injured in any way by somebody else, it'd be hard for even me who practices this stuff, hard for me to not have some sort of anger and and towards that. So You are an example of the true human spirit. You're an example of how people could, should, would be, especially in these times. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much for that. And I want people to experience more of you as well. I know you have a podcast as well. Share with us a little bit about your podcast, how they can reach you, and anything else, and especially how they can continue their journey with you.
1: Yes, I'm so excited to be launching my podcast, Pain to Purpose. Of July 1st is the date, so we will see. Hopefully, that happens then. And it's all about people who have taken the worst parts of their lives and they've turned it into their purpose and their destiny. And I feel like that has been kind of my thing. You no, know, you think? I think-
0: <laughs> <laughs> if not you, then who? Huh?
1: Bring on the tough stuff. Hopefully I don't get blown up by any more bombs. You know, I I hope to lead a pretty boring life. But even after Boston, My daughter, they thought I would never be able to have another baby and my daughter came too early and I almost lost my life that weekend and I almost lost her. But after a summer in the NICU, she just turned four in May and she's doing wonderful. So life is not a fairy tale. And the minute that we decide that it's not going to be and we're still just going to think of it as beautiful and look for the good stuff then we have a great life. So hopefully the podcast will reflect that. And anyone can reach me on my social media, Rebecca M. Gregory and Rebecca M. Gregory.com is my website.
0: Fabulous. Rebecca, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And for anybody, please spread this word. Please spread that you have heard of this amazing woman. And through stories, just like now, through stories, you change people's lives. So I appreciate you. I thank you. And I look forward to interacting with you more. And I know you also, as you said, you have an organization that you work with to helping people with mental health challenges as well. And so I want to thank you. Thank you. And remember, everybody, life is exactly what you dare to make it, and fortune favors the bold. And to remember to boldly step up and dare to live the uncommon life. Rebecca, thank you so much, and I will see you Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of the Cure for the Common Life podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review it on your favorite podcast player. And if you have any questions or comments or any topic ideas, you might want to be a guest on my show. You can reach me directly at josephmcclendon.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you at the top.